I'm Alicia Michalisek Kurtz, and welcome to Real Talk, a place where doctors and other healthcare professionals share stories about their real human experiences working in medicine. On today's episode, we'll hear a story recorded at an online, video conference based, socially distanced Real Talk session. This story comes from Dr. Omar Mania, an emergency medicine resident physician in New York City. It likely goes without saying that for doctors like Omar in New York, this COVID-19 pandemic has been particularly rough. New York isn't just the hardest hit city in America, it's the hardest hit city in the world, with case and death rates for this one city topping most other countries, including China and Italy. It's arguably worse in New York City than in any other place on the planet. And while most people have seen the many stories on the news about the high death rates, how contagious and easily COVID spreads, the battle healthcare providers are fighting to get enough personal protective equipment or PPE, what's less obvious to the public are the real reasons this has been super tough for healthcare workers. Again, especially in places that have been worse hit, like New York. Yes, we train to manage surge and resuscitate critically ill patients, and in medicine, we're exposed to death and tragedy and trauma all the time. But this, this is something different, something way more intense and deep and massive in ways we probably can't even articulate very well just yet. COVID-19 is different than any other monster anyone practicing medicine today has ever had to tackle before. This is not something we've trained for. It's not exactly the job that we signed up or were trained to do. This is Omar's story. I had the privilege of caring for patients during the peak of the coronavirus, and it was wild. I mean, usually I'll intubate one patient a week, um, but during the surge, I was intubating like, seven or eight a day. And very rarely do I actually have to pronounce a patient dead. But during the surge, I was pronouncing up to seven or eight patients per shift. And these weren't just your average patients. These patients were really sick. And I remember I had one patient who came in satting 31%. And as I intubated him, it was one of the fastest tubes I've ever done. It went down three, two, one, zero. I didn't even know the monitor could breathe that low. But as I think back to the last few weeks, there's definitely a volume and critical care component, but, but there's more than that that makes this really hard. And I, and I think there's three things. The first is the science. You know, I pride myself on knowing what to do. I feel like there's always a right answer especially when it comes to critically ill patients. Like, this is the vent setting they should be on. This is the uh, dose of this medicine we should give them. But this pandemic sort of upended all of that. I mean, I would hear about innovations or new things about coronavirus from non-medical family members on WhatsApp. And that's because they read it on social media somewhere, and I just didn't know that yet. Or... I was using new vet settings like APRV, which I've never done before in the ED. 
And I remember when FEMA sent us those LTV events, the, the FEMA events, they're really different than our usual events. And I didn't even know how to turn it on. So I had to Google the user manual and find how to turn on. And these are things that like, we're not trained to do as, as doctors. Like in medical school and residency, we're, we're trained to know what to do and to, to know the science. But, but coronavirus kind of changed all that. The second thing is the way we deal with death. You know, usually in the ED, like, yeah, we say we deal with death, but we don't really. I mean, think about it. Like, I'll treat a patient, and then I'll pronounce them dead. And then I go back to my computer, I click a button, and someone magically pulls the curtain and makes the body disappear. A few minutes later, I look over, and the bay is brand spanking new. But during the pandemic, things weren't like that. Our morgues were full, so you know it was taking a little while longer to transport bodies. Um, we had to create makeshift uh, morgues, and so I remember walking by the what used to be the shower in the ED, and instead of it being an empty shower, it was a bunch of body bags and caskets lined up. And you know, usually when I leave shift, I, I go out of the hospital and I turn right, and. Um, I was walking by this large refrigerated truck, which I had no idea what it was until I saw it on the news. It was actually a truck that was brought in to store dead bodies because we didn't have any more space in our morgue. And so I think the, the way we deal with death or rather the visibility we have into death um, went from pretty minimal to a lot in a short time frame, and that's not something we usually deal with. And I think the last thing that, that was really different about this pandemic is our interactions with family members. I mean, I know some emergency doctors love talking to family members and others really try to avoid it. And I've been both of those things at various times. I think it depends on what side of the bed I wake up on in the morning. But but, you know, this whole pandemic and the lack of visitors changed all that. Um, I remember I had a, a trauma and it was a, it was a young male who came in. Uh, unfortunately, it was a really bad trauma and he was pronounced pretty quickly. And usually in those situations, I call up the family member, like sort of we're taught in med school. And I ask them to come in. I try not to break really bad news like this over the phone. And so I'm talking to this person's wife, but of course... You know, she can't come to the hospital because of the restrictions on visitors. And so I have to break the news to her on the phone, which is not the ideal way to do it. After she collected herself, her first question was, well, when can I come see him? And I'm like, uh, well, we're not really doing visitors, so uh, you can't. And she's like, all right, well, what about when can I come see him in the morgue? And I'm like, well, uh, you can't do that either. And, and she was pissed. I mean, rightfully so. The, she was like, so you're telling me my husband just died unexpectedly and I can't come see his body? Yeah, pretty much. That's a weird position to be in. Um, and the other examples, I had, a, I had a patient who came in. She was really, she was elderly, DNR, DNI. 
And uh, she was really sick. And we all knew where this was headed. I actually took care of her for a couple different shifts because she was in the ED for, for a little while. And um, I remember I, I just happened to have like a, a slow moment as she was decompensating. And so I had the opportunity. I was like, let me just go ahead and call the family and at least give them a heads up. And so, so I called her family and they were like, hey, well, could, can we see her face? I'm like, well, I, I guess. And so I, I, I FaceTimed them on my phone and, uh, and I walked over and they were like, just, just show us her face. You know, the whole family is sitting crammed into, you know, one apartment room staring into this guy's iPhone. They all break down crying and they're like, can you put the phone up to her ear? And so I, I put the phone up to her ear and I stood there for what felt like was an hour, but it was probably five minutes, uh, long enough that my shoulder started hurting. They read a prayer and they're like, thank you, doc. Um, this really meant so much to us. And just a few minutes later, she passed away. But as I, as I reflected on that, you know, I, I did nothing for that patient clinically. Like there was nothing we could do to change the course of her disease. And she ended up dying. But for that family, it meant so much. Uh, and it felt like I had done a ton. And, uh, and that's just some of the ways I think that the family dynamics have become so disorienting uh, in a way that we're not really used to. And I, I, so I know that as emergency physicians, we find it really exciting uh, to take care of sick patients. But, you know, this pandemic, it's, it's really disorienting because the science is is not grounded. We don't really know what's going on. The way we deal with death has changed so much. And the way we deal with families has also been disorienting. And so while I know lots of people are excited or sitting in the ED waiting for their surge, you know, as someone who worked through the pandemic and lived through it, I'm not so sure that the reality of it, the sense of drowning and like truly not knowing what the heck is going on, I'm not sure that's so exciting. And I think for, for me and, and maybe others, uh, it's something I'm actively trying to forget. Omar's story highlights something we are probably not talking about enough. The fact that while yes, the surge and the sciencey part of this are hard, what we are experiencing as humans on the front lines this is not something we're just going to walk away from unscarred at the end. This COVID-19 pandemic is asking healthcare providers and first responders to put aside almost everything that brings them joy, including having confidence in your ability to do your job well and to practice good medicine, the ability to leave work and freely return to your normal life with family and friends, to decompress with your favorite de-stressing method of choice, and it's asking us to endure far more tragedy and sadness than we're used to. To prevent family from being around the bed of a dying loved one. To be disallowed that chance to give people the moments of closure and support we normally are experts in providing at our hospitals. To be at work all day, every day, literally 
physically surrounded by death. This is not an exciting time for us. We're not thrilled at the chance to deal with this or waking up every morning hoping to be a hero. Make no mistake, this experience, this is trauma. It's war against an invisible enemy, one we can't see coming and that's difficult to study and understand. This is living filled with constant uncertainty and doubt and fear, enduring stress in a way any reasonable person would never want to do. Omar's story is a good start at this conversation, but there is so much more left to unpack. And in our next episode, we will start to do just that. So make sure you subscribe to The Real Talk Podcast so that you don't miss it. But for now, Omar highlighted the three things that stand out to him as making this time extra stressful and weird. What are the things that stand out to you that make this rough for you? What is it you will carry forward that you will need time to heal from, to process, to come to terms with in your own way when we're finally free to return to a life that feels at least a little more normal? Thank you to Omar Mania for sharing his story with us, to the team at Vituity for their support of this podcast, to Marco Gonzalez, our sound engineer, and to all of you for listening. I'm Alicia, and this is Real Talk. Want to connect with the Real Talk podcast or record your story with us? Head to www.vituity.com forward slash Real Talk for more information or email us at Real Talk at V I T U I T Y dot com.